Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Father Francisco Nahoy. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. Uh, Father Francisco is a Franciscan friar and a Roman Catholic priest. He has degrees from Harvard Divinity School, uh, the University of Nevada, where he earned his PhD, degrees from Dartmouth College and colleges in Rome, where he studied theology and philosophy. Now, he joins the Zaytuna faculty in 2017, where he is assistant uh, professor. Uh, Dr. Francisco teaches courses in ethics and politics, and also teaches on Plato, Plutarch, Dante, Shakespeare, and Renaissance literature, which he is passionate about, and so am I. Um, <laughs> It's remarkable. People are going to want to know, Father, it's remarkable that a Catholic priest is on the faculty of America's leading Muslim college. What's going on there? Uh, how does that work educationally? May I ask a question first? Please. Is uh, the audience that follows blogging theology already familiar with Zaytuna College? I think um, they might well be through people like Dr. Ali Atai, Dr. Abdu Abdullah oh, Ali. Of course, my uh, colleagues. His, your colleagues who are extremely honored guests. Uh, so I'm delighted there's a third one um, uh, now. Um, so yeah, there, there is probably some general, well, I wouldn't say everyone's <coughs> aware though. Well, Zaytuna College is, as far as I am aware, the first fully accredited Muslim liberal arts college in the United States. Mm. And it's located in Berkeley, California, immediately adjacent to the University of California, mm. and also sort of nestled into a cluster of theological schools known collectively as the Graduate Theological Union. So it's um, a consortium of, uh, well, originally of five Protestant schools um, a Unitarian school and three Catholic schools. And um, right, so we're kind of in a, in a cluster of, yeah. uh, uh, of uh, academic wow. um, theological faculties, as well as in the immediate vicinity of the University of California, Amazing. Berkeley. So it's, it's, a, it's a good uh, environment for studies and for scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, and actually, I think um, Zaytuna College was wise to found itself right there because mm. it's, um, th there's a, a certain level of intellectual momentum that translates into, uh, I would say, a strong impact on the student uh, body and on curriculum development at Zaytuna yeah. College, just, yeah. just by the fact of being right there in, in Berkeley and knowing that others' eyes are on you. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. It must be an amazing place to, just to walk down the road and bump into students or academics. It's hard to get away from it, which is some people that's paradise, uh, mentioning <laughs> no names. But no, but seriously, how, how does um, how does a Roman Catholic priest end up in a Muslim college? That was the, the point, really. Well, I as it happens, I had done a period of um, ministry in uh the Catholic campus ministry at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Mm. It's uh, the nation, I think it's the nation's oldest private secondary school and, or one of the older ones at any rate. And um, during that period, we invited Sheikh Hamza Yusuf oh. to 
speak for the Andover um, interreligious roundtable, as we called it, weekend. So it was a, 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 a an interfaith um, study and um, witness weekend, you might say. And that was when I first got to know him. That was uh, probably in 2005, maybe, or 2004. So Zaytuna Institute, as it was called then, was mm. somewhat on my radar. And years later, when I moved back to uh, the, the San Francisco Bay Area, I was aware that they had transitioned from having been uh, Zaytuna Institute with a focus primarily on uh, the formation of adult Muslims mm. to Zaytuna College with the intention of founding an undergraduate program. So I, it was sort of on my radar. Yeah. And I had, uh, at the time, done uh, a, a tenure of uh, parochial ministry. I had been the rector of the cathedral parish in Reno, Nevada. And during that time, had been very close to Nevada Right to Life and other... Mm. Um, similar organizations. So even mm. though I had moved back to California at that point, I was still sort of unofficially connected to them. And, and uh, mm -hmm. it was the aftermath of the 2016 election cycle in mm. the United States. Um, we had a physician-assisted suicide bill coming before the state legislature in Nevada. Wow. And Nevada Right to Life said, well, you know, we, we want to do a series of uh, roundtable discussions in universities uh, in order to place uh, right-to-life physicians before the university community. And I said to them, you know, if you do that in the aftermath of this election cycle, you are inviting trouble. Mm. Um, because it's hard for people in the aftermath of such an emotional experience to really recalibrate and engage in ways that are not explicitly partisan. So they said to me, well, what should we do then? And I said, well, look, you can't, you can't put a Catholic or a Mormon or an evangelical in front of this particular audience at this particular moment. Mm. They said, well, wh whom do we put then? I said, well, why don't you ask a Muslim physician to speak wow. about these issues? And they, they said, what? I mean, <laughs> we're expecting you to say that. Yeah. <clears throat> How on you know? First of all, what do Muslims think about these same uh, biomedical ethics issues that are important to us? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, my primary experience with uh, these issues among Muslims is Sheikh Hamza, who told right. us at the Andover Interfaith Roundtable that weekend that if you really want to know the Muslim position in biomedical ethics, find out what Pope John Paul II is saying. <laughs> And it will be very similar indeed, although wow. informed, of course, by uh, a, a different Abrahamic tradition. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, they, it took them a little while to digest what I was saying. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, all right, so here's the next question. If we were to ask a Muslim physician, where the heck would we find one? Yeah. And I said, well, you know, there's this new um, Muslim college in Berkeley. I have to be in Berkeley later today. Why don't I stop by and ask? Mm, gosh. And it was after uh, December finals, so the autumn semester, I think you call it Michaelmas there, had just mm. ended. And uh, only the dean was in his office when I 
rang the doorbell in the, the administrative building and he answered right away and said, oh yeah, come in and what are you looking for? And oh, I can give you Dr. Rania's information. And she she's, uh, was formerly on our faculty and, and is also um, a physician at Stanford. Um, oh, yes. So while, while he was giving me this information, he said, and, and what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm the, the mission promoter of the Franciscan Vietnam mission which engages me for about six months of the year. And the remaining six months of the year, I'm meant to be finishing a dissertation. And he said, oh, in what? And I said, Renaissance rhetoric. Wow. And yeah. he said, oh, well, thank you very much. He gave me the information. And uh, we, we said our goodbyes. 24 hours later, Zaytuna College offered me a job. Wow, that's incredible. And the story I heard, I, 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 I suppose I should verify this before repeating it, on, on, in, especially under publication, but um, <clears throat> the story that I heard was that just that day earlier in a, 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 a faculty meeting, the president of the college, uh, Sheikh Hamza, had, had uh, alerted the presidential council that he thought he would not be able to teach the semester of rhetoric in the spring because he had so many speaking engagements um, being requested of him in, in the aftermath of the 2016 election cycle, which was brutal for, for Muslims in the United States. I don't know if how, how closely um, you might have followed that in, in the United Kingdom. So he evidently felt that he, he needed to be more available to the community at large. Yeah. And they decided they'd have to start looking around for someone who could teach rhetoric. And apparently the dean called the presidential council mm. and one of the members of the council said, well, we have to offer him a job. We were just praying that God would send us a rhetoric teacher and <laughs> send him right into our... And he, and he literally walks in the front door 24 hours ago. Yeah, but yeah, amazing. amazing. So, so it's really um, a, a remarkable uh, set of circumstances that, that brought yes. me to uh, to, to say to the college at all. And at the end of that semester, I had taught as um, an adjunct, I think in Britain, they might call them a reader maybe, or. Yeah, um, depending on the college, if it's Oxford or Cambridge, it's a different name from the other universities, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the end of that semester, they offered me a full-time position. Hmm. And um, so I, we, the, the Franciscans consulted the, the general curia in Rome I bet, and they also, I bet they uh, do. <laughs> Straight right, to the and, with this job request. <laughs> and and also the Bishop of Oakland, um, yeah. both of whom greenlighted the project immediately. Wow. Um, the Bishop of Oakland, himself a Jesuit, was especially welcoming, has been multiple times to our campus since then. So um, who was, I interrupt you. Who was Pope, if I could put it this way? Who was Pope at that time? Was it Francis or Benedict at the it time? It would have been Francis in 2016. Wow. Okay. Okay. So he would have been in his third or four, beginning the fourth year of his pontificate. And uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up on the faculty. <laughs> and I even spent a year as the, the, the interim director of admissions. So wow. if, 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 if it seems unusual for a Roman Catholic priest to be uh, on the faculty of a Muslim college, how much more unusual, especially to Muslim parents, if their children are interviewing with a Catholic priest, they'll say, well, Wait a minute. This is a Muslim college, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what, why is the was the director of admissions wearing a dog collar uh, and right. dressed as reverend? <laughs> right. He doesn't have a beard either. 
No, I'm only joking. Uh, no, that's a delightful uh, story. Thanks for very much sharing that. Uh, perhaps we can turn to more um, somber matters now, um, as advertised, uh, uh, about the Pope, uh, the late Pope, Benedict the Sixteenth. And um, just to give a, f a brief uh, introduction to, to viewers who may not know uh, who he was, uh, he was the head of the Catholic Church um, and sovereign of the Vatican City Stakes, the Vatican state by the way is it's uh, like america is uh, has a you know a united nations has a, uh, an ambassador and everything else anyway um so he was the head of that from 2005 until his resignation uh in 2013 uh benedict chose uh, to be known as pope emeritus upon his resignation like a, a retired professor you know professor so-and-so emeritus um and he retained this title until his death just last month in December 2022. And Benedict is generally known for defending uh, traditional Catholic doctrine, values, and liturgy. And perhaps surprisingly, he was originally a liberal theologian, uh, but adopted quite conservative views after 1968. Quite a significant year, 1968, turned many people to... Uh, Roger Scruton is a well-known uh, think and philosopher in Britain. Uh, 68 was a, a pivotal year for him when he became very conservative. Anyway, uh, in Paris. Uh, in Paris yes, well, yes, it was a famous um, uh, student, uh, well, nearly a revolution in Paris in the 60s, which well, it had a big effect ultimately in California, of course, in the university campuses there, in Berkeley, and the whole world kind of engulfed, the student world was engulfed in radical activism, but that's another story. Um, uh, now, during his papacy, Benedict advocated, as I say, a return to fundamental Christian values, but specifically to counter the increased secularization uh, of many Western countries. So uh, just see if I can ask you, Father Francisco, to first share with us what you understand to be the Pope's significance for the Catholic Church. Well, uh, if, if I may, I first like to address the question of um, whether or not uh, Joseph Ratzinger began as a liberal and migrated into conservatism. And my first concern about this way of describing his um, intellectual and uh, public development is mm. that it relies too much, I think, on neat binaries, namely mm. liberal and conservative, which come bundled with a host of other uh, political and social issues that I think are not necessarily the best matrix within which to locate the subtlety of his theological uh, commitments. So, right. first of all, I, I want to say that the, the Ratzinger, the, the pre-60s Ratzinger that I read... So, so just to clarify for you, the Ratzinger is... Uh, who what Pope Benedict was before he became Pope. That was his actual right. real... Jo Joseph Ratzinger name. is his Joseph baptismal Ratzinger, name. His actual and, baptized uh, name. He really got Pope and, and became Benedict. Yeah. Right, known as Benedict the Sixteenth. So um, I, I think the first thing that I want to stress is that when I read the pre-60s Ratzinger, I see a tremendous continuity with what he had written and said afterwards and especially during his papacy. In, in many respects, I want to say that the papacy is the crystallization of thinking that had already been set in motion um, when, when he was a very young scholar indeed, uh, first mm -hmm. at Tübingen and then uh, a, a peritus in the Second Vatican Council. 
So I'm I'm not entirely comfortable myself with the idea that that we're looking at um, a Ratzinger who did uh, a significant about face right. in the way that, for example, Roger Scruton uh, describes his own changes in commitment. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, I, I, I see Ratzinger as a, a radically a whole and continuing to be that way straight through to, to the end. Uh, mm -hmm. Now that said, what the, the, I, I think the deeper question is why do I think that? What do I see in Ratzinger especially mm -hmm. that um, uh, would be um, continuous uh, threads that that are woven into the fabric of his thought. And, and I'd say really, um, here's probably the, the central idea uh, for Ratzinger. And this is something that I became acquainted with when I was 18 years old, if you can imagine. Um, fresh out of high school, my freshman year in college, I randomly pulled a book off the shelf of the library at the Newman Center at the university where I was studying at the time, and it was uh, a book of Joseph Ratzinger's. And um, <clears throat> these are the the words that I had in mind for this um, interview to, to to share with your your viewers. If Ratzinger tells a series of stories. Um, drawn from primarily contemporary sources, a French dramatist, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, mm -hmm. um, modern Jewish Hasidic tales, and he uses all of them to paint a portrait not only of the uncertainty of faith in the modern world, but of the radical uncertainty of doubt in the modern world. And this is what he says. Um, <clears throat> the believer knows himself to be constantly threatened by unbelief, which he must experience as a continual temptation. So too, for the unbeliever, faith mm remains a temptation and mm -hmm. a threat to his apparently permanently closed world. In short, there is no escape from the dilemma of being a man. Anyone who makes up his mind to evade the uncertainty of belief will have to experience the uncertainty of unbelief, which can never finally eliminate for certain the possibility that belief may, after all, be the truth. Now, if we think of this as a, a core element in Benedict's attitude toward the world changing so radically around him, I think we'll see that, that what we're looking at is not uh, um, a thinker who was liberal in the 50s and the early 60s and then conservative in the 70s and the 80s, but rather a world that has spun out of mm. control and is veering right. uncertainly from one extreme mm. to another. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's probably the first experience that I've had of, of Ratzinger. And I have to say too, you know, I, I, I began my theological studies in Berkeley where I, where I teach now, one oh, really? of the theological faculties that I alluded <laughs> to earlier mm -hmm. um, in the mid 1980s. 
And it is not an exaggeration to say that even in the Catholic, maybe especially in the Catholic faculties, Ratzinger was the most hated man in the Catholic Church. Yes, yes. So that yes. was hardly a great environment for a guy like me who felt that, you know, Ratzinger was in some respects his papa, at least intellectually. Yes. Yes. And the first ever, in my mind, to, to, to begin that um, constant rapprochement that every believer in the modern world is compelled to undertake, which is uh, the rapprochement between reason and faith. Fide et ratio. A ratio didn't John Paul II write an encyclical called precisely that? He did. You know, John Paul II cranked out um, a ton of encyclicals, didn't he? Yeah, they're great stuff. I mean, I, I, Veritatis yeah. Splendor is my favorite uh, encyclical ever, uh, ever. And I can't help thinking, and this is digressing, I don't mean to digress, that Pope Francis wouldn't really like it. That's my hunch. But what do I know? I, I don't know how to answer that either, but I can say this. Mm. One of the first things that uh, Pope John Paul II did was to pluck Joseph Ratzinger out of the Archdiocese of Munich and plunk him down right in the middle of the Congregation for the Doctor of the Faith. And Ratzinger... Sorry, can I uh, follow? I just, sorry to interrupt. The Con Congregation for the Doctor of the Faith, for those who don't know, is, and forgive me for characterizing like this, but you've heard all this before, I know, is the modern successor of the Inquisition yes, <laughs> of the Church. I've, I've actually been examined in the Inquisition, by the way, and I'll have you know I was found wanting. <laughs> no, really? That's a, that's a different story. I had to take a Hebrew exam there, and I didn't pass it. So I had to go wow. back later and pass it. But, but anyway, it's the, the, the building is called the, um, the Holy Office, and the it's Holy the Holy Office, Office of, the, of the Inquisition. So I was actually examined by a, 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 a Did they biblical torture, scholar. Did they torture you? Did they put you on a rack or put, put hot pokers in your ear or something? Did well, they do the, anything? The, the torture was having to learn all of those Hebrew paradigms. <laughs> well, that's even and, worse. That's fiendishly cruel, surely. Right. So, um, <coughs> we, I mean, most people, I think, don't really fully appreciate the, the degree to which Ratzinger vetted, commented upon every single encyclical that John Paul II wrote. Now, I, I'm not saying that it is not absolutely originally John Paul II's material, but everybody benefits tremendously from the commentary of others. And it's no accident that yeah. John Paul II placed Joseph Ratzinger right at his side. Gosh. If his career is going to be a career of teaching, as indeed it was, cranking out those encyclicals, who right. better to have at your side than the most perspicacious theological mind of the, the era? <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. So I think I think really, um, you know, well, he, he Hans, wrote, Hans Kung would probably disagree with you on that. He might privately think he Hans Kung was the most uh, in, uh, perceptive theologian of that time. So nobody today reads Hans Kung. Really? I have not. I haven't met a, a young Catholic seminarian who is re currently reading Hans Kung, and they're only oh. vaguely aware of him. He, he oh, absolutely he recently, doesn't have he? anything in particular to say to the church okay. at this moment. Okay. But I think Ratzinger still does. Um, however much you may not like what he has to say, he still has mm. plenty to say. And mm. um, yeah, so I, 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 yeah, I'm not hostile towards Hans Kuhn. 
Um, but I, he, was, he, I, he did sort of make a career out of dissent. He did, but I mentioned him also because Ratzinger, if <clears> I can <throat> call him one, he was, I think when he was Pope actually, Pope Benedict, didn't he meet with Ratzinger in Germany uh, and have a conversation with Hans Kung? I mean, the two, you know, uh, they both embody the opposite wings of the church, I, I would put it. And they met in Germany, spoke German. They were German academics together in a way. Kung um, Swiss. Swiss, you're absolutely right. A, a German Swiss, a, a German Swedish, mm -hmm. anyway. But they, they met in Germany and uh, apparently had a very amicable uh, conversation. They didn't strangle each other. And uh, so I guess that was good. <laughs> I have a funny story about how amicable Pope good. Benedict was. Uh, when I was a seminarian in Rome, it was mm. shortly after the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued the monitum, that is to say the warning, with regard to the works of the liberationist uh, oh, yes. theologian, uh, Leonardo Boff, a Brazilian. Oh, very, very famous and, liberation. Uh, yeah. Right. And, and um, I think, you know, I, I have to say that those um, two documents on aspects of liberation theology that, that Ratzinger wrote and that were promulgated under the authority of John Paul II absolutely nail the difficulties with liberation theology. So there, I, I recommend that anybody who is interested in the question um, read them because they, they really, um, in some respects, I would say they saved liberation theology by, um, by delimiting the space within which it could legitimately operate. But that said... Sorry, just, that's the point. I mean, Berkeley, you say uh, Ratzinger was a hate figure, but that was they the reason why, I think. For because, that. That's exactly. why. It's because of those interventions more than right. anything. Because yeah. of being a, so, a left-wing <clears throat> environment, shall we say. Ratzinger's critic of Marxist influence influence liberation theology in South America um, exactly. w w was, of course, taken very badly by people on the left who are very into activism and social action. Right. And so Leonardo Boff was sort of the poster child of, yeah. of that oh, right. uh, issue. Right. And uh, a group of my Franciscan confreres, 11 Brazilian friars, went to uh, the midnight mass at the Vatican. I, I, I guess I'd had a cold or something and just decided to stay in bed that night. So I didn't get to see this myself. But they all saw Cardinal Ratzinger after the mass and they pounced on him, right? And they said, your eminence, your eminence, can we have a picture with you? <laughs> and I want to say that Cardinal Ratzinger knew, he said, first of all, he said to them, you're Brazilian, aren't you? And they said, yes, your eminence. And he said, all right, come on, let's have a picture. <laughs> he knew <laughs> well, yeah, perfectly well that Brazilian Franciscans wanted that photograph for the notoriety of, uh -huh. of it be, having been Ratzinger. And he said, yeah, what the heck, let's do it. <laughs> so he was, he was really game, and he was a, mm -hmm. a, a gentle figure. And I think he had a good sense of humor too. And this is what all the Brazilian friars said after the encounter as well. They said, we, we, we got, we understood that he knew what we wanted the photograph for and he wasn't fussed. And he said, okay, what the heck, let's just do it anyway. <laughs> That's a funny story. But um, just moving on uh, to more, uh, a more controversial uh, side, <clears throat> another controversial side. He wasn't popular in Berkeley with the students, but uh, there was a um, Benedict's relations with Muslims 
uh, were very strained at, at, at times. And in 2006, he delivered a lecture which mentioned Islam at the University of Regensburg, if I mispronounced that, in Germany. And Muslims were particularly offended by a passage that the Pope quoted in his speech. And this is the quote. So forgive me, it's offensive, but I'll quote it. Show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. Now, this was a quote from um, a, a Christian emperor, uh, um, a Byzantine emperor, uh, before the sack of Istanbul in the, I think, in the 14th century. But nevertheless, uh, the Pope saw fit to quote it. Um, and Muslim critics said the Pope made a number of historical errors as well. Uh, the main one, which I think is a very, very interesting teaching point, this, this is a mistake, because it is a mistake. Uh, I don't think anyone could defend it otherwise. The main mistake he made was, Although the Pope had said that Surah 2, verse 256, which states, there is no compulsion in religion, end quote, was an early verse, early verse, when Muhammad was powerless in Mecca, this, this verse was in fact one of the last verses to be added to the Quran in Medina at, at a time when the Muslim state was powerful. Um, so this is an elementary mistake, but it's not like just a technical error. It actually completely um, changes his argument from, um, in fact, about, about Islam at that time. So it's a very significant mistake. Um, so my question to you, and, and I know uh, perhaps you, you're not familiar with all the details of that particular lecture at that time. And I know there's a lot more to say about Pope Benedict than just that incident, which did cause a uproar um, in the Muslim world. I remember, yes. And many scholars, Muslim scholars, wrote to him and protested. It's a, this is not good for uh, peaceful relations with Muslims, and this is just a mistake you made. But was Pope Benedict, do you think, just badly advised about Islam, or do you think he held a, a deep animosity towards the religion? Uh, I think he was neither badly advised nor... Um, held an animosity toward Islam. I suspect he made the blunder entirely on his own. And the reason I say that is because the what little familiarity I have based on uh, biographical descriptions um, mm. with with his scholarly methods is that he he, he produced his material alone. Oh. So I think um, now, maybe he ought to have had a Joseph Ratzinger at his side <laughs> to vet things like that, but he didn't. The, the subsequent uh, uh, prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was not, in fact, a theologian of, of particular note. He, he was maybe a very competent administrator. So I, I think it's probably correct to say that Pope Benedict made that blunder entirely on his own. But I think it's also important to underscore that it was a blunder. And I mean, elsewhere in the, the substantive corpus of 
his life's production of commentary and of theology, he speaks very uh, approvingly of Islam and especially of the radical monotheism and the notion of submission that characterizes Islam. So what can I say? I mean, I'm not a, a, a Benedictine apologist and I certainly wasn't on his staff at the time. So I don't, I have nothing in particular to defend, uh, but I would say, <clears throat> yeah, the, 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 the historical errors that, that are evident in the Regensburg address, I think they are to be attributed to him. But uh, attributing hostility toward Islam, toward him, I think, um, is not correct because I don't I don't see that elsewhere right. in his um, either in his pontificate or in his uh, uh, theological work up to mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the, <clears throat> the the interesting characteristics of the Regensburg address and uh, something that is. Um, probably just as uncomfortable for Christians <clears throat> as for Muslims, at least contemporary Christians. What the Regensburg Address does more than anything is come down solidly on the uh, on one side of the so-called um, um, <clears throat> Euthyphro dilemma, right? Do Euthyphro dilemma, this is obviously from Plato's dialogue. Well, I, I mean, there, there are multiple forms of this dilemma that are articulated uh, at least in the West, after afterwards. But the basic idea is, do right. the gods love this because it is pious, or is it pious because the gods love it? Mm -hmm. And the intellectualist position, which is represented in figures, at, at least in the West, like um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, mm -hmm. is clearly the position, the side on which Benedict comes down in that particular address. And I think his reasons for doing so <clears throat> were to, I mean, Franciscans were really upset with this address too, oh, really? because it seemed to marginalize the thought of John Duns Scotus. Ah, the English philosopher. The, and a Franciscan friar, right? Oh, okay. blessed, blessed John Duns Scotus, who had been, um, uh, whose, whose uh, beatitude had been recognized formally by the universal church under John Paul II. So, um, you know, we were kind of, thinking, oh, well, pretty soon he's going to be canonized. This will be great, right? And and fr the Franciscan intellectual life is back. Hmm. That hasn't happened, right? And that that has a lot to do with the um, the the Regensburg address. Hmm. So, um, but I'd say that's probably, <clears throat> at least insofar as um, Christianity is concerned, the the one of the more significant implications is that the, the, the Holy Father in, in that instance seems to have come down very solidly on the intellectualist side of that uh, particular dilemma. Mm -hmm. Gosh. I, I think it's also just worth stressing for, <clears throat> for people who may not know what the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is regarding Muslims. And I've just got a couple of paragraphs here I just want to share. Obviously, uh, Father, you, you're very well aware of uh, these passages, but I'm going to be just read from the Second Vatican Council. This is what's called an ecumenical council that met in the early 1960s. Um, the bishop and the popes, all the universal church, all the bishops in the world uh, met in Rome, in the Vatican, of course, the sovereign state of the Vatican, um, to um, 
in a certain, I mean, there's various ways of describing it, but one way I, is to update the church in terms of its relationship with the world, with religion, other religions and so on, um, that hadn't really changed since, um, well, the medieval times. Um, but anyway, uh, the second part of the so this teaching that I'm about to read to you about Muslims and Islam, it comes now from the highest authority in the church. So it's not just the opinion of a pope, an opinion of a priest, it's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church about Muslims. So I just want to stress that this is, if you hear a Roman Catholic speaking badly about Islam, and unfortunately you do sometimes hear them speak that way, they're not following the teachings of the church. They're following their own whims and desires and prejudices, arguably. Uh, and we, one can say that authoritatively because we know what the church uh, taught. And I have the... Uh, the documents here, the Vatican Council number two, um, which contains <coughs> uh, the documents. So just two couple of brief question, uh, quotations. Uh, the first one's from a, a document, they're all in Latin, by the way, Lumen Gentium, uh, published in 1964. But the plan of salvation, says the Catholic Church, also includes, includes those who acknowledge the creator in the first place among them are the Muslims. The first place, Muslims. Those, these Muslims profess to hold the faith of Abraham and together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. End quote. That's just one short extract from Lumen Gentium, this authoritative uh, conciliar document. Uh, the other one uh, is another document uh, called Nostra uh, 80, 80, 80, 80. Etate. Etate, thank you. Um, yeah, our, means, age, uh, our, our age. Our age, exactly. Um, and in English, um, it says this. Uh, again, this is the highest teaching authority in the Roman Catholic Church, or all Muslims, uh, or Christians, actually Catholics, are supposed to agree to this today. The Church mm -hmm. has also a high regard for the Muslims. They worship God, who is one, living and subsistent, merciful and almighty the creator of heaven and earth who has spoken to men they mean men and women i think by that they strive to submit themselves without reserve to the hidden decrees of god just as abraham submitted himself to god's uh, submitted himself to god's plan to whose faith muslims eagerly link their own although not acknowledging him as god they venerate Jesus as a prophet. His virgin mother they also honor and even at times devoutly invoke. We're not going to go there, by the way, on that, that last clause, as controversial thing to say. Further, it continues, they await the day of judgment and the reward of God following the resurrection of the dead. For this reason, they are highly esteemed uh, for this reason, they highly esteem an upright life and worship God, especially by way of prayer, alms and fasting, end quote. Now, that's an extraordinary statement for the Roman Catholic Church to make. Historically considered, if you look at the, what the church, that the Crusades, of course, and the, the papal endorsement of invasions of Muslim lands and so on. We're not going to go there either. But I don't mean to bring up that in a negative way. I'm just saying that the progress that has made uh, been made in the church to uh, in understanding and, and tolerance and respect, even though uh, an acknowledgement of differences, of course, um, 
is, is extraordinary uh, and one of the great fruits, uh, I would argue, of the Second Vatican Council. And of course, Ratzinger endorsed very much all his life the Second Vatican Council. Supported he, he was one of the, the periti, one of the um, theological experts who were charged with drafting these documents. Right. Well, there we go. So, you know, this has to, the, the, the speech he gave in Germany, which we've already mentioned, needs to be seen perhaps in this larger context of, of in terms of his legacy, hopefully, uh, as one of the participants in the Second Vatican Council, which produced these extraordinary documents, which I've just quoted from. Do you, do you have anything to add to that at all, Father? Well, um, I think <clears throat> that uh, I, I basically have just two things to say. Um, firstly, the the what we consider the novelty of a catholic priest being on the faculty of a muslim college in the united states um is due in no small part to that document wow wow now i say in no small part i, I think there are other historical considerations to be made and uh, that's simply this you know St. Francis of Assisi antedates Nostra Etate by 800 years. Now, what's the story and, about St. Francis? And what did he do? That says, I'm aware of the story. He did something remarkable, didn't he, for, for well, his time? Well, he, he um, uh, according to the hagiographers, he crossed the battle lines at Damietta during the Fifth Crusade and entered into a colloquium with the Ayyubid Sultan um, Malik al-Kamil. And I, I think, you know, um, we uh, unfortunately, we only really have a European hagiographical accounts of this event. We don't have any Ayyubid accounts of this event. I think that would be fantastic. Oh, yeah, be fantastic. I, I've, yeah. I've actually, um, consulted with my colleagues um, on the question of, you know, what, what's, what degree of speculation can, are we capable of that would answer the question, why would Malik al-Kamil listen to someone like St. Francis of Assisi, and why would he, uh, why, why would such praise of the saint be attributed to him? In other words, can we make an attempt to read this event through an explicitly Muslim lens. And I think if we were to do that, we'd find that both Christianity and Islam have always had uh, a degree of radical openness to one another that um, has existed, unfortunately, side by side with the, the, the competition and uh, the, the warfare. But it is the task, nonetheless, of the intelligent believer who is committed both on the Christian and on the uh, Muslim sides of the question to explore the, the relationship in greater depth. And I think that um, there's a sense in which Nostra Etate is uh, attempting to say definitively to capture definitively this uh, less well-known aspect of Muslim-Christian relations that nonetheless reaches deep into the history of both.
Mm. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, my last question, if I may, uh, to you, another controversial one, but not perhaps as harrowing as the other one. Um, what? what the heck? I mean, at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just, you, anything. Yeah. Um, why has Pope Francis, obviously the successor of Benedict, why has Pope Francis uh, apparently sought to undo the conservative liturgical reforms uh, of his predecessor? And um, I read recently in the UK Catholic Herald newspaper, uh, which reported... Uh, and I quote, new curbs on the traditional Latin mass broke Pope Benedict's heart, according to his private secretary, end quote. And his private secretary wasn't just some secretary. It was he was an arch is an archbishop, <laughs> uh, no less. Yeah. Um, this is, fine, I think, is the, yes. the one whom we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, this has hurt a lot of people here in the UK. I follow the, I try and follow the Catholic press in the UK and, and in the States. And a lot of uh, Catholics, um, and I think a lot of bishops here, I suspect, would sympathize, uh, feel uh, hurt at the uh, apparently brutal way that their um, traditional uh, appreciation of the Latin mass um, has been curtailed and made difficult uh, uh, by by the Pope uh, in in his recent decisions, and and this we now know after Benedict's death, very sad that this broke Pope Benedict's heart, and you can imagine the two popes in the Vatican, one emeritus and the other non-emeritus, um, one having his heart broken by what the other just around the corner was doing, and it's just a, a very tragic and sad um, account, and. Um, uh, does does Francis know? I mean, I, I mean, I know that there's a reasons why he did it. I'm not th that naive to think he was just being vicious. He wasn't. There's a political reasons, strategic reasons, ecclesiastical reasons why he wanted to yeah. put these guys in their place. You know, some of them are schismatic. Some of them were anti-Vatican II. A lot of them, all of them, probably anti-Francis. I mean, not officially, of course, because he's the Pope. Um, but you know, you know what they're thinking under the surface. So he, he really wanted to kind of rein them in perhaps but it's caused a lot of heart uh, heartache uh, um which is well known here and i mean uh, what's going on there i mean is is this you know the, the france is supposed to be the uh the inclusive the welcoming the you know breaking down barriers and you know to uh lgbt people particularly but others the poor and so on. when it comes to the traditional people in his own church he doesn't seem to like them very much and that's extraordinary mm. I don't know what to say. I, I mean, as far as I, I, apparently I'm not on his speed dial. So I didn't get a chance to offer my opinion before Tradiciones Custodes was uh, promulgated. I can say that I do myself celebrate the traditional Latin mass Gosh. regularly, not to the exclusion of the Novus Ordo. I still no. have, of course, public um, commitments in both. Mm. Um, at least in the majority of the diocese of the United States, the situation hasn't changed that much. Oh, really? Okay. Since um, Tradiciones Custodes um, has been promulgated. Um, I don't really know what to say. I, I, I can't read um, Pope Francis's mind. I, I can say this, though. Um, on At the moment of his election in 2013, the Italian bishops asked him to rescind 
Sumorum Pontificum, which was the motu proprio from Benedict XVI that permitted the um, unencumbered celebration of the traditional Latin Mass by any priest whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he refused to do it. Hmm, interesting, interesting. And he apparently was persuaded in 2021, was it? I guess just a year ago. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, or sorry, it was a year ago in July. So 2020, 20 it must have been. Um, but that's, you know, seven years of having been um, uh, uh, asked repeatedly by various bishops from elsewhere in the world to rescind it. Now, um, it should be, I think, specified that although Pope Francis did, in fact, rescind the, the motu proprio, he hasn't rescinded this, the, the, the celebration of the, the traditional Latin Mass. Mm. And <clears throat> although there may well be restrictions in some places, there are next to no restrictions in other places. What Basically, what Tradiciones Custodes did was to return the discretion about the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass to the local ordinary. Which means the local bishop, by the way. In, right, which in, means the local place. bishop. Yeah. So in some respects, um, this is actually a, um, how can I put this? Pope Benedict gave that discretion to priests at large. Mm. Pope Francis now requires priests at large to be in dialogue with their bishops. But, but some will so say... If I, so if I had to say which of those two is the more conservative, I think I'd, I'd, I'd say Francis mm. has actually given us a more conservative um, set of procedures to follow in the sense that the priest has to be in dialogue with his bishop in order to be able to celebrate that mass. But the problem so, is that there, there are many, there are many uh, bishops, uh, I mean, you know better than I, who am I to say, but uh, I get the impression there are many bishops who are quite hostile to um, the Latin Mass uh, in their dioceses, mm -hmm. and so wouldn't give permission. So, the, you know, in those right. dioceses well, where the... So I, th I think um, um, Dr. Seuss put it best. They do not like it in a boat. They do not like it with a goat. They do not like it here or there. They do not like it anywhere. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> That's all I can say. I mean, I, 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 I can be impatient with such uh, bishops, but I, I'm not a bishop, and I'm not, more importantly, I'm not the bishop of Rome, so I don't get to make these decisions. Um, but I do believe that those of us who are deeply attached to the traditional Latin Mass, who have uh, either discovered in it or rediscovered through it, a, a particularly um, apt response to the glaring secularity of the world in which we are immersed and who are therefore uh, heartbroken, I guess is the word that Ganswein used, at the restrictions that have been imposed on it, need simply to consider that God has permitted this. 
there is God yeah. turned the vessels of the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar. And he did it for the good of Israel. Right. If these restrictions are for the good of the Catholic Church, who are we to object? And we can't not say, oh, but they're not for the good of the Catholic Church. Because that's what it means that we have a pope mm -hmm. who is competent to make these kinds of, of disciplinary decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think um, those of us who, who love the tradition are in a position where we really have to, uh, as the saying goes, put our money where, where our mouth is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to be and, we're going to be a Catholic, obey the Pope. That's the whole thing. Point of being a Catholic, sorry to be simplistic and caricature, is that you follow the Pope. You know, if you're not going to do that, then well, he, he is he is the visible sign of unity, right? And Saint Francis of Assisi, for what it's worth, said, "You will obey the Lord Pope." He didn't say you will like him. He didn't say you will obsequiously fawn over every word he says. He says you will obey him. This mm. is the, these are the instructions that he gave to the friars. So I may not be happy with this, but um, I, I cannot help but believe that if we commit ourselves wholly to the will of God, he will bring us through this, and it will be much better for us than if we were doing it some other way. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I, I wait in hope, and um, and I encourage others who, who love the traditional Latin Mass as I do, and and uh, especially priests who celebrate it to, to continue in hope. We, we do not yet know what God has in store for us. I must say, I didn't realize you celebrated uh, the Latin Mass uh, and frequently. Uh, um, so not only are you- Pretty frequently, mo mostly actually. I, I, I probably celebrate once or twice yeah. in, the, in the Novus Ordo in the course of a week. But it's, it's, it is also to be said that I have a tremendous commitment to vernacular mass, I've I've taken the trouble to learn how to celebrate the 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 holy sacrifice in multiple vernaculars, so as to be able to um, to, to bring the sacraments in places that will sometimes otherwise be marginalized. That's partly why I'm here in Polynesia right now. Um, You're in Tahiti, aren't you? <clears throat> I happen to be in Tahiti at the moment, but I, I I'm just back from a stint in the outer islands in the Tuamotu archipelago where there are no residential priests right. and so it's it's important to be able to go there and to um, engage people sacramentally in the language that uh, draws them closest to God mm -hmm. so I have you know I have tremendous commitments on both sides of this equation and, uh, remarkably diverse. I, I mean, I, I, I'm still c coming to terms with the idea of a Roman Catholic priest teaching at a Muslim college. <laughs> and now you're telling me that the most of the time <clears throat> mass, it's in Latin, which the Latin mass uh, is a very traditionalist thing. So it kind of it makes it even more kind of, not exotic, but unusual, shall we say. Right. Father unusual. Father that's unusual. What they, that's that's your, what they call me. Oh, did, did they? Yeah, it's an extraordinary um, uh, juxtaposition of roles. So I, you know, I was recently in Ireland, by the way. Okay. Um, you did this in Tahiti, the, Ireland, America. <laughs> well, it, it, the, the the Renaissance uh, Society of America was doing its uh, annual conference after several prorogations on account of COVID, COVID and yeah. I was presenting a paper, so I had occasion to be there. 
right. and uh, I spent some time at a, a traditional monastery where only the Latin Mass is celebrated. And um, basically, all I did was um, send my credentials to the bishop and ask for permission to go there and to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass while I was there. And he said yes. Right. So maybe if it were a different bishop in a different location, he would have said no. Yeah. Um, but all I can say is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of me having whatever I want whenever I want it. That's the kingdom of McDonald's. <laughs> uh, you're going to write these things down. That's very, very witty. Uh, <laughs> the kingdom of McDonald's. What a horrible thought. Um, well, we, um, have, we, have, we do have the tendency in modernity to think in terms of titled. You know, yeah, 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 because I, 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 in every other aspect of my life, I can basically have whatever I want. At least those of us who live in the first world. You live in California, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Maybe not in everywhere else. Um, I mean, but I was—I I, I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned to you—I was going to ask this question, but it's just a final uh, supplementary question. And it just occurred to me: um, after John Paul II died, uh, there was clearly a movement to have him uh, declared a saint to be canonized. Um, do you think that's going to happen with Ratzinger, with Benedict the Sixteenth? Again, I'm not on anybody's speed dial, as far as I can tell. Do you sense though that there's a movement to do that, or is it just not going? I mean, because there was that I, movement. I, I, I don't. Like, I don't think there's. Uh, I think there already would be chatter about it. Yeah, was something that. But I mean, the the big, the big issues to resolve with regard to our thinking about Benedict the Sixteenth is what does it mean that he abdicated the pontificate. Mm, that's true. Mm, mm. So I think yeah, it'll yeah. take a, quite a bit of time. So yeah. All I can say is the last pope who abdicated hmm. was canonized. Mm. Right. right. Oh, he was. Oh, I thought you were saying something else. Oh, I didn't realize that. Celestine V, even though um, some people claim that he's he's the great refuser whom Dante places um, in, in the Inferno, Nonetheless, the Universal Church recognizes him as a saint. But I, I still think that was the product of quite a lot of time for reflection, and I suspect that Ratzinger, one way or the other, will also need to be the product of quite a bit more time. Mm. Uh, we're not the, the the Catholic Church these days. I, at least as far as I can tell, is not particularly in a reflective mood. <laughs> we don't exactly yeah. reflect. No, you know, not not like. Once we, we tend to be swept away in one direction or another, just like everybody else. I'm sorry to say. Yes, um, but yes. but hopefully, um, you know, the day will come when we're in a in a, a more of a frame of mind uh, to 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 reflect about things like this. And okay, it can yeah. wait. It's not the kind of thing that needs to be resolved immediately. No, no, no indeed. Um, oftentimes, it was centuries before people were, were declared saints. Exactly. Uh, not five minutes after they died. The real issue is not not. Mm whether um, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, will, will become a saint. But the real question is, by the grace of God, may I become a saint? That is to say, may I live a holy life and so be happy with God in the world to come? Mm. This, is the, this is the more important issue, right? Okay. Now for that's, each, uh, for each uh, one of us. Spoken like a pastor, yes, indeed. Um, I just want to say, I, I, uh, I read this book by... Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, Jesus of ah, yeah. It's got both names. At the top has got Joseph Ratzinger and then Pope Benedict uh, the Sixteenth. Uh, it's great reviews. I mean, th this uh, the, what the reason I one of the reasons I appreciated this 
book was because it really showcases uh, Ratzinger as a scholar, a scholar of the gospel, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the historical Jesus. He engages with the latest German scholarship, academic scholarship, uh, um, uh, very, very well. Uh, the positions he takes are very traditional conservative positions, say on authorship of the gospels, uh, well, the historicity of this and that, without going into the details. Uh, but nevertheless, even though he comes to the inevitable conclusions, perhaps that he upholds the tradition of the church, he does so engaging with the critical issues. And um, in a way that I, I wasn't aware that John Paul II ever did or Francis has, has done. I mean, they're not academics like that like uh, Ratzinger was, that you can't John, put John Paul II sort of was, yeah. I mean, he had no, two doctorates. A, right? a biblical scholar? I mean, as a, as a New Testament scholar, specifically. No, he wasn't, a, he, he, he didn't yeah. have any pretensions towards... No, no, that, that, that's, that's, yeah, he was a scholar in other things, of course. I, I meant in this particular area. So um, this book's been very popular with Catholics and Christians in general, actually, and uh, so I wanted to uh, get to see what he was saying uh, about, about it. I must say, I didn't really, I wasn't persuaded by, I wasn't compelled by a lot of his arguments but who cares that's not what matters um but j just just to say that uh you know he, he is someone who's taken seriously academically uh outside of the confines of academia uh, in, the, in the books he's written and this is a part of a series of books on jesus this is just uh one of them um and they're all very readable actually he wasn't boring for a german scholar that's pretty unusual <laughs> So he is very readable. His prose is, is very uh, accessible. And yes. this is something that I, I try to instill in my students at Zetuna College, that mm -hmm. we want to be able to take complex theological ideas and speak of them simply and directly mm -hmm. so that they, they can be accessible and uh, their compulsion comes from within not from a great barrage of words. Mm, gosh, that's a, a, a very interesting thing to say. Well, that's, uh, we'll conclude it there. I do thank you very much, uh, Father Francisco, uh, who, who is uh, uh, in Tahiti at the moment, uh, when he's not in Ireland or right. California or goodness yeah. knows. I mean, I'm an ethnic Polynesian, so my, my cousin is uh, a priest here in the Archdiocese of Papeete, and he asked me if I could come to help him during uh, the, the, the Christmas um feasts so wow that's what brought uh, me here and i've had the huge pleasure and privilege of uh speaking to interviewing a number of your colleagues as a tuner uh, professor abdullah ali and professor ali atai and uh sheikh hamza yusuf uh inshallah will be coming on blogging theology in a month or two the date is yet to be fixed but he's yeah. himself to coming on and a, a huge uh uh, expectations for that and very much looking forward to what he has uh, to say and you have a new English philosopher who's uh, just um, indeed uh, we do uh, yes uh, uh, and uh, who's from Cambridge and he's I'm in touch with and he's just packing up from Cambridge now uh, yeah. where he was uh, at the university to join you as a philosopher um, at Zaytuna so um, and he was also on blogging theology talking about Kant and all sorts of amazing things so oh fantastic Oh, yeah, Hassan yeah. Spiker. Yes, uh, Hassan Spiker. And he's actually, he, he, I mean, to, to be crude, he's a, a white English Muslim, but he's not a convert. I mean, he, he comes from, I think, a second or third generation Muslim family. So uh, an extraordinary thing. Um, and uh, But he, he has a, a sparkling intellect uh, and um, is an absolute pleasure to, to talk to, as are the other guests, I hasten to add. But, um, there's a, you've got a special bunch of colleagues there, as they tune, I must say. We're very blessed. 
indeed. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and um, thank you for your time. Until next time. You're welcome. Bye.